If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, another parable I, I suspect that we are familiar with. And um, the one of the few places, maybe the only place where justification, the doctrine is clearly articulated in the Gospels. Luke 18, if you will stand with me, we'll read verses 9 to 14. Luke the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, may even lift up his eyes to heaven and but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask as always, you open our hearts and our mind, our eyes and ears, our mouth, hands and feet, uh, that we would receive your word, be transformed by the power of the gospel. Here we have the gospel. May we not miss it. May I decrease so you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. Is there a certain way that you, you want to be accepted by, by others? I, I'm no doubt we want that, but is there a way by which we, we go about it? I, I suspect that, uh, or at least uh, jokingly, I like, like to think that one of the ways we do this is uh, a young man meets a young lady and he, he wants to get her approval right away. So he works on, of course, pickup lines. And I've got some pickup lines that I think no doubt would win over the heart of any young lady. For example, do you believe in love at first sight? Or should I walk by again? Right. I really like that one. That, that. Are you from Tennessee? Because you're the only 10 I see. Look, if, if you try that, you don't deserve Marriage. Pardon me, miss. I've seemed to have lost my number. Can I have yours? That's not my fault. I fell in love. You're the one that tripped me. I may actually try that on, on a man to see if it works. Somebody better call God because he's missing an angel. Did it hurt? You know, this is the classic one. Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? You know, I've gone up to a man before and you know look at the tag at the back of her shirt and say, yep. Made in heaven, right? You know, it's, it never works, but it's worth a try. Hello, I'm a thief, and I'm here to steal your hearts. If I could rearrange the alphabet, I'd put you and I together. Don't try that one. That one, that one's just overused. Well, here I am. What are your other two wishes? <laughs> I do like that one. I got to say, I, uh, that, that one would probably work. Can I borrow a quarter? Uh, now, this doesn't work anymore because we don't have pay phones, but work with me here. Can I borrow a quarter? I want to call my mother and tell her I just met the woman of my dreams. Or should I call your mother and thank her? Well, you can take that or leave it. I, I don't know. I don't know. But um, no doubt the purpose of a good pickup line is to get a stranger to, to like you, to listen to you, be interested in you, to accept you. But of course, we, we go about more practical ways to get others to accept us. We want to impress our intellect. We want to engage in conversation, sort of things like this. But what do we try to do to get God to accept us? 
In Job chapter 25, Bildad the Shuai, he doesn't do a lot of things right, but, but he, he does raise this interesting point. He says, Dominion and all belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does he his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, a maggot, and the son of man, that worm? How can man be just with God? How can man be accepted before God? That is the question of this text. How can a man be just and right before God? The parable begins with the setting here in verse 9. As, as one of the things we've seen is each parable doesn't just, just come out of vacuum, but rather they, they, sit, they, they, they sit in a certain setting, a certain a context, and that context often gives us clear hints of how we should interpret it. And so it is given there, verse 9. He also told this parable. We, we saw the persistent widow several weeks ago um, there in the first eight verses. So he told this other parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so this is, this is the key, right? Those who are self-righteous are those who treat others with contempt. By the way, these two go hand in hand. Whether we're talking about traditional religious people or whether we're talking about secular religion, there is a connection between self-righteous and treating other people with contempt. After all, if I am righteous, they are not. Therefore, I am better than they. The two always go hand in hand. Self-righteousness leads to arrogance. And we're seeing that today, right? If you don't go along with the slogans, if you don't uh, say all the right things and believe all the right things, then you're an outcast. You're treated with contempt. Secular religion is equally religious as anything else. And that word contempt is an interesting word. It, it speaks of very strong contempt. It's the worst scorn, MacArthur argues, that one could put upon the other. Well, let me give you just two examples of this in, in the New Testament to sort of give you the context by which it is used. Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Notice there is in the context of crucifixion. Uh, likewise, Acts 4, he is the stone which was rejected by you. That word rejected is the same word used here as contempt. Notice in both examples, we could look at others. It's not a very common word. It's a very strong word. The context is that of, of uh, it's a very strong word. It's more than just, well, they're not up to my level, but rather that they are very small. They are insignificant. They are a nobody. It's a very strong word. And Jesus says, those who are self-righteous will be those who treat others with contempt. You cannot love others if you love yourself too much, right? The, the, the formula that Jesus gives is that if you love God with your entire being, that is the means by which we rightly love our neighbor. Well, that's the setting. Let us look at the uh, situation here in verse, verse 10. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in the first century Judaism, there were no polar opposites in society than a Pharisee on the one hand and tax collector on the other. Uh, this might be equivalent, if we were to think of one today, uh, as a drug, a drug king on the one hand and Billy Graham on the other, right? Uh, I mean, th these are complete opposites that, that, that we have here. And you'll notice here, if you've been following with this in our study of the parables, Jesus loves to make contrast, right? So you have, for example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the Good Samaritan, and no Jew would have ever put good in front of the word Samaritan. And on the other hand, you have 
the Levite and the priest, right? And in so many ways, people would, would, would contrast those, those two people. You remember the uh, rich man and Lazarus, how, how Jesus goes out of his way to draw a contrast, right? One is, one is in, in life on the outside, the other is on the inside. In the afterlife, one is on the inside, the other is on the outside. They've, they've, they've switched. One is in agony, one is in glory, and then in the afterlife, they switch. But the opposites are still there, the older versus the younger brother, right? And then we could look at several others, particularly Luke's parables emphasize these contrasts. Now, most striking in this narrative is how the villain in the end is what we presume to be the good guy. It's what makes it a good story. Right? There is a twist where we see the Pharisee at, at, at the a temple where we think, well, of course he's at the temple. This is what priests do, right? They go to the temple and they pray. And so we assume he's the good guy. But by the end, we actually see he's the bad guy. Again, in, in modern lingo, we may say the, the drug king versus Billy Graham. Imagine if we told the story where at the end, Billy Graham is the bad guy and the drug king is the good guy. Well, we would really struggle with that sort of conclusion, wouldn't we? Well, the Pharisee, we, we meet him here in verse 10. Pharisees were viewed as being, and frankly consider themselves, very pious. Throughout the New Testament, they are seen parading their holiness for everyone to witness. On top of that, they were considered guardians of righteousness. They believed that Israel was under captivity because of wickedness. And so they, they enforced a strict adherence to the law, believing that if only they were righteous enough, if only they were good enough, then the Romans would be defeated and God would liberate them, as God did with the Greeks and God did with the Egyptians and every, everyone else. So thus they policed the behavior of the people with the weapons of shame and guilt. Today we call that mainstream media. But nevertheless, uh, this, this, was, this was one of their primary jobs. They walk around and see to it everyone was pious. Uh, I, I told some of the young guys this morning at lunch uh, this story, but years ago, uh, I met some of Amanda's family that I had never met before and haven't really seen very often since. We, we all have those members of the family that we may see once a year or even less than that. And, and uh, part of this family reunion was a softball game. And I went out there. I was young, uh, hip, um, as, as the kids don't say, and uh, good shape, all that sort of stuff, and, and we played softball. And, and I made a few hits, made a few catches. Remember, I got my, my uh, now mother-in-law out. Uh, that was quite thrilling. Um, well, at, at the end of the softball game, uh, one of my wife's uh, uh, family members, uh, we were just you know, drinking water, whatever it is, after the game, talking. You know. And uh, he says, so, Kyle, you know, we, we had this connection because of softball, you know. So, Kyle, what, what do you do for a living? You know, I was a student at Boyce. I was 20, 21, I don't know, around the time we were married. And, and then I thought, well, I already know how this conversation is going to go. I could try to get around the answer and say I'm a student. But then he's going to ask me what am I studying, and I'm going to have to say I'm studying to be a minister. And we're back to what I want to avoid because I know what's going to happen, right? And so I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a youth pastor. Uh, and he, and he, he kind of stood there, and he says, oh, what for you? That was the end of the conversation, right? I've not spoken to him since, right? <laughs> you know, and that, that, that happens, happens quite a bit, you know, that, that uh, people assume that if you're a minister, you, you must be like uh, these sort of Pharisees where, where, where you walk around uh, securing everyone's piety. Um, but nevertheless, it, it isn't surprising here to see a Pharisee at the temple praying. This is their, their job. We then meet a tax collector there in verse 10. And, and, the, and I read this and I think, what's he doing at church, right? Have you ever 
said that to yourself? You would never say it out loud. Of course, you're too pious for that. But have you ever said it to yourself? Like, what, what is this person doing here? Do they get lost? What, do they, they, they think we're, we're, we're handing something out at the end of the service? You think there's a prize or whatever? You've thought that. Right, you you can lie to me publicly. It's fine, but we all know we all know that we've done that, and that's what everyone would have said about this tax collector. Would have came in, snuck in the back with with all the the righteous people, and 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 people would have looked around like they didn't know he knew how where to find this place. Well, Judea, we should note, did not like their tax collectors. In fact, they contributed roughly two to five percent of Rome's total income. It's a little land of Judea. Rome put taxes on property, poles, customs, tolls on imports and exports, roads, bridge tolls, and harbor dues. Basically, they function like the federal government. In addition to that, Jews had to pay religious taxes. So you paid your, your, your taxes to Caesar, right? And you remember that? That's a big matter of debate among the Jews. And then they had to pay what we might call a temple tax. This was to keep the temple functioning and running, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, we might call that a tithe, but, but it, it really is sort of you're forced into it. If you're a good Jew, you're, you're going to do this. And that was a half shekel to finance construction and maintenance. Remember, Herod spent over 40 years um, renovating uh, the temple. He called the fixer-upper people and had it uh, renovated with a lot of shiplap. Uh, and, and on top of that, your tithes would support the priest. Well, some Jews, as a result, would pay over 50% of their income to both religious and government authorities. Now, can you imagine? Half of your income is going somewhere other than your family and to your children. If they could not pay their taxes, they would be put in debtor's jail until the taxes were paid. Their property could be sold, and they and their family could be put into slavery in order to pay their taxes. To make it worse, tax collectors like to overcharge. Rome did not care how you got the money so long as you meet your quota. And that was a recipe for, um, for, for extortion. And so if, if you owed, say, $100, they might charge you 200 Rome's not going to do anything because all Rome wants is the $100. And if you do that with everyone, you're going to make quite a bit of money. By the way, it doesn't just stop there. If you're the low-level tax guy, your boss wants a piece of the pie. So you've got to extort enough to pay you and your boss. And by the way, his boss wants a piece of the pie. And his boss wants the piece of the pie. And on and on it goes. Therefore, uh, to the Jews, tax collectors were, first of all, extortioners. And they were. They, they, they were robbing from the poor. Uh, in order to, to fuel their own bank account. The other thing is they viewed him as traitors. Again, go back to the story of, of Jesus. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This was a very hot-button issue because Caesar was an occupying force. Why then should we support the enemy? Why should we financially support them? It was a very serious question that was being asked. And Jesus shows that there is, we have an obligation to Caesar, but we also have an obligation as God's image bearers. But the tax collectors, they easily, they obviously were on the side of Caesar. After all, they were working for Caesar. They were extracting money from, from others for Caesar. And so they had betrayed the Jewish cause in favor of Rome. So no wonder then these tax farmers, they were called, were among the most despised people in the world. And if you read the New Testament, I assume you're familiar with this, the New Testament often associates tax collectors with harlots and other notorious wicked sinners. Yet, these two men come to the temple to do the same thing. They come to the temple 
to pray. So we go from the situation to the self-righteous. We start with the Pharisee here. He is standing as close as possible to the actual sanctuary, which means he, he is trying to get to the Holy of Holies. This is the place of promise. After all, remember that, that God dwells in the Holy of Holies. So in theory, the closer you get to, to that inner uh, room, the closer you're getting to God. So the Pharisee has to walk down the middle aisle. I have no doubt it's the middle aisle. And, and here he is in all of his long tassels and his self-righteous garb looking so well for church. I mean, he got up early just to get ready uh, uh, for, for service. Probably got his new Easter outfit, no doubt. And, and he would never wear it again. He's just too righteous for that. And he, he's right down there in the middle where everyone can see him. And you'll notice... The content of his prayer, right? He's, he's going to go down to the middle. Everyone's going to be seen. He's going to lift his hands way up. And then everyone's going to be able to hear him. They're going to see him. They're going to marvel at him. And, and he thinks, everyone's looking at him thinking, I wish I could be as holy and righteous as him, right? Um, and, and notice his prayer. First of all, it involves isolation. Notice he is standing by himself. Now, this isn't just isolating himself from dirty people, those unrighteous people who are lesser than him. But... It allows him to choose a prominent position. No one else is worthy to be up that close. No one ha- deserves this. And so we, we see Jesus warns us of this in Matthew chapter 6, right? When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He talk about the Pharisees there. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. And this man has his reward. He is isolating himself for the sake of applause. Isn't he holy and righteous? But it isn't just isolation we see here, but it's comparison. Thank you, God, for not making me like these other men. I mean, what a bold prayer that is. But by the way, we, we think this all the time. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't admit it in, in polite company, of course, but we think this all the time. Every time we turn on the news and see chaos in the streets, we think, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. Whenever we see evil in, in, in the wicked, we think, man, I'm glad I, I don't act like that. Right? We, we do this all the time. This isn't just a problem with Pharisees. This is the problem with the human heart. He, he says, thank you, God, for not making me an extortioner. I like this tax collector. Thank you for not making me like the unjust. I like this tax collector. Thank you for not making me like this adulterer. We could probably assume it's like this tax collector. And thank you for not making me like that specific person in the back of the church. What's his name again? Oh, Carl, the IRS agent. Yeah, thanks for not making me like him. Better be careful, lightning might strike him and showing up in church. In other words, thank you for not making me the problem. I'm not what's wrong with this world. If more people like, were like me, if more people thought like me, voted like me, lived like me, believed like me, this world would be a better place. Now, let's be honest, Southerners. <laughs> We've all thought that. We think at every election, right? You know, if everyone voted like me, if everyone saw the world the way I do, we wouldn't be having all these problems, right? The problem in this world is kids ain't spanked like I was spanked, right? You ever say something like that? Of course you have. But it isn't just isolation and comparison he has here, but it's also ritualism. Notice, again, what he says there. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So notice two things. First of all, he fasts. He was not required to fast twice a week. The law only required Jews to fast once a year. This guy fasts twice a week. Now, this guy is really spiritual. 
Let's be honest, Christians. If, if God asked us to fast and pray for revival, how many of us would do the praying part and we'd skip over the fasting part, right? Uh, I mean, fasting is not something we do once a year. We usually don't do it once a lifetime. Now, I don't want to brag, but for about two weeks I fasted recently because of COVID-19. But other than that, let me tell you, I, I was not eating, wasn't praying other than God, get rid of this or get rid of me. You choose, right? That was my prayer. I was not praying for world peace. I was praying for, for the end of all this. Um, but religious leaders would, would often fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And there's some debate as to why that is. One of, the re, one of the theories is those were market days. So when everyone's out buying the food and groceries and everything, what are they doing? They're saying, well, I'm, 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 I'm fasting. You know, I, I can't be getting your, your food in the market. I've I'm just fasting for Jesus. Right? And they'd walk off and people would say, wow, I wish I was that holy. Right? You know, grapes for a dollar or whatever it might be. But that's just, just one theory possibility why they did fast it on Mondays and Thursdays. This isn't just that he fasted twice a week, but he also paid his tithe. Now, the religious leaders tithed everything. And I mean everything down to leaves and spices in order to demonstrate their self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus is critical of this. He, he raises this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, do you have a spice rack or a spice drawer or something in, in your kitchen? Okay, what I want you to do is next Sunday, I want you to bring to the church 10% of that. Uh, you're probably thinking, well, how in the world do you manage that? I don't know. But they're claiming they're, they're tithing 10% of that. You know, um, I mean, that's dedication. That, that, is, that is dedication. Now, such a self-congratulatory prayer was not uncommon at this time. Uh, we have uncovered one such prayer that is similar to this. So, so we give you to show you that Jesus is not just making up a ridiculous scenario. Uh, I believe this is Josephus that gives us this. I, I could be wrong. Uh, this is from a Pharisee during the time of Jesus. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, that you have assigned, you have resigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit at street corners. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah, the law of Moses. They rise early to attend to things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come, while they run toward the pit of destruction. Now, that's, a, that's one way to pray, I guess. A couple of things to note about the, this Pharisaical prayer. One, he begins mentioning God, but never mentions him again. Who's the center focus of this prayer? It's me. Your prayer's like that? Dear God, thank you for being awesome. I need you to fix all my problems. I need you to deal with Aunt Flossie who just, I can't handle it anymore. I need you to fix this medical issue. He, in fact, he refers himself five times in this short prayer. I mean, the man could run for president, given how much he likes to talk about himself. We go from the self-righteous to the sinner here in verse 13, notice the simplicity here. Tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, the, the emphasis is on the opposite of 
Pharisee, right? Everything the Pharisee did, he, he did the opposite. They're in the same sanctuary, both offering prayers at the same time. Yet everything about them is, is total opposite. There's two ways to see how different they are. The first is, notice his, post, his position. Tax collectors don't belong in church. I doubt he's dressed like a church-going guy. And I have no doubt his reputation precedes him. After all, he has taken money from everyone in the church, right? I mean, I'm sure he has a face they couldn't forget. You can see little boys and girls, you know, tugging on, on their parents' britches, saying, Mom, Dad, is that the guy that took our property? Is that the guy that threatened to put you in jail unless, unless you, you sell our last donkey to the pay Caesar? Is that the guy? Yeah, that's the guy. I remember when he did that. You remember what you said during dinner time, Dad? Not now, son. Not now. We're not going to say what I said out loud. This isn't the time or place for that. But isn't that the guy? Yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't belong in this church. His lifestyle, his life choices, his actions will make him stick out during worship. But isn't just his position, his, his posture is quite different. Notice, first of all, he stands far off. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector stands far off, knowing he's an outcast and unwelcome a visitor. Right? The Pharisee wants to be the center of attention. He's wanting to stay on the outside, and, and he's, he's, he's embarrassed, right? He knows who he is. He, he stands far off because he's unworthy to, 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 to step closer to God. He is likely the farthest away from the holiest site in the temple while still being in the sanctuary. Yet he knows he is unworthy to be so close to his maker. Not only that, but he faces the ground. The Pharisees looking up. Now, th th there's nothing wrong with that sort of posture. You can still find that posture in some Christian traditions, even Jewish traditions here. But, but the contrast is, is important. One looks up to heaven because he thinks he is worthy of it. The other looks down, beats his own chest because he knows he is unworthy to stand in the presence of God. He refuses to look at the throne room of God out of fear that God's righteous anger would come towards him. And he beats his chest. He, he is crying a humbled prayer for mercy. We get this, right? We, the beating of the chest is an act of humility. Is to say, I am unworthy. I am a nobody. What a contrast we have here. And on the one hand, you, you have a prayer of me, 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 me. And notice this guy's prayer. It's seven words in the Greek. And these seven words summarize the gospel. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Anytime I, I lead someone through, through the gospel and we have a time of prayer, in that prayer, I encourage people, you can either repeat after me or uh, publicly or, or personally, or you can pray your own prayer. There is no magical prayer that gets you in, in, into heaven. Um, but, but, but one of the things I like to throw in there is this prayer because it's simple, and yet it, 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 it has everything you need in the gospel. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a humble prayer for salvation. If I am a sinner and you're praying out to God for redemption, then that means God is your Savior. And what God must extend to us is mercy. Why? Because sinners do not deserve grace. Sinners do not deserve God's righteousness. It is simple yet authentic. It is sufficient in its re requests because of the humility of the supplicant's heart. Right? And that's the thing. Jesus says, look, the Pharisee has his reward. People hear him. People applaud him. He goes home and, and he can brag to the boys how righteous he is. This man has his reward because he comes with a contrite heart, offers a sincere, authentic prayer. God hears him and responds accordingly. Now, let us be honest. There is room for pride for this tax collector, right? 
Think about it. He could pray, God, I, I, I know I'm, I'm not perfect here. I, I know I, I'm rough, but at least I came to church today. I mean, all my other buddies wouldn't come with me. I'd invited them. Say, guys, I, I think we, we, we've gone too far here. We need to get our life straight. And they all made fun of me, but at least I came to church. There's plenty of room for pride here, but no, that's, that's, that's not what he's doing. He doesn't promise to be better or to do better. He humbly comes before the cross. He comes before the throne of God and he begs. This leads finally to the Savior. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. I mean, that is a shock, isn't it? He concludes that of these two men, God hears the prayers of the extortioner, not the pastor. Not only did God hear that sinner's prayer, he answered his prayer. He walked out of that temple justified. God accepted him. Not for what he was going to become. Not for what if he tried hard enough he, he would be more like the Pharisee. No, he declared him righteous. That's the meaning of justified. Though the man was a sinner who stood justly condemned by God, God forgave him. Christian, understand this is what happens when the sinner weeps over his sin and trusts that all of our filthiness will be cleansed by the blood of Christ on the cross and his righteousness is imputed unto us. This prayer means that this humble tax collector is seen by God the way the Pharisee saw himself. He is righteous. If this man's righteousness doesn't come from religious duty, religious obligation, or his pedigree, it comes from a humble, contrite heart that fell before the throne of God. And you'll notice there the rest of verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is typical sort of proverbial saying by Jesus. See, he's warning us that it is common for man, religious or secular, to trust in themselves, to exalt the self as a result to be humbled. This is why we show contempt for one another. At the end of the day, our religion, whether it's religious Christianity or some form of wokeianity, our self-righteousness produces contempt. Jesus warns his first hearers as he warns them that unless we come humbly before the throne, we will always be outside of God's throne, outside of his presence. So the question Jesus wants us to ask is, how many of us are like the Pharisee and how many of us are like the tax collector? It's sort of a trick question, isn't it? Because there is no difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. How the two manifest their fallen nature may be unique, 
but both need the same thing. But only one knows they need that thing. So how many of us can come before the throne of God and be declared righteous before Him? Apart from Christ's finished work and our humble acceptance of it, none of us can stand accepted before Him. Tim Keller gives what I think is a helpful illustration of this. Imagine you are a billionaire. Don't forget to tithe that, by the way. But imagine you're a billionaire. And you have $100 in your pocket. Someone asks for financial help. You give them a $50 bill, but you thought it was $20. You discover, in fact, it was $50. What are you going to do? Are you going to go back and say, I'm sorry, sir. I gave you too much. I need $30 back. You going to do that? No. Why wouldn't you? You're a billionaire. What is 30 extra bucks to you? It'll save you on taxes anyways. The same is true for the Christian. You have Christ. You've been made rich in Why then do we focus on what we lack or what we're entitled to or what others may tell us? We have Christ. We come humbly before him. And he gives us what we have not earned and do not deserve. We inherit his riches. So instead of contempt, let us choose love. Let's pray.